Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 4 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's a, it's a short chapter. Um, a lot of these are 20, 30 verses long. This one is 12 now, verses long. And uh, tells an interesting story. You know, I'll get ahead of myself. I've been stepping away from my notes a lot lately. Maybe it's a mental thing. I don't know. But, um, when you go through Kings and Chronicles, especially as you start digging into the history of, the, of David's royal line, and of course then the, the kings of Israel as well is set up in opposition to the kings of Judah, um, you'll come across kings who reign, you know, 10 years, and then the Bible will just tell you they reigned 10 years, and a couple guys went in their bedchamber and killed them. And that's all. But here we have an entire chapter dedicated to the murder of Ishbosheth, the rival king to David, and how God dealt, or how David dealt with that, which is how God dealt with it. Whenever I read chapters like this, I always want to know why, why does God want us to know this? Why does he give us so much detail. When we look at this, we'll see that there's an intentional expanding on the details of what happened here. So there's there's a message in this for us. Now, we have a loving Heavenly Father who wants us to know His mind and His will concerning all things. And He gives us this 2 Samuel chapter 4, because he wants us to know a little more about himself. But there are other things too. He wants us to know what he wants from us as well. As we love the Lord, we should desire to know from God what he wants. What does he want me to know here? What does he want me to be concerned with here? That, that should be our hunger and our desire as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Will you stand with me? And we'll read the chapter together. 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Bena, and the name of the other, Rika. The sons of Ruman and Berathite, and the children of Benjamin, for Berath was also reckoned to Benjamin. And the Berathites fled to Gitam, and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee. That he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Ramon, the Berathite, Rechab and Bana, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. <clears throat> when they came into the house, he 
He lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him, and took his head and gat them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David the Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Beana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more? When wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they thought they, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. Let's pray. <coughs> Gracious Lord, as we open the word together, we thank you for the stories from the Bible. We thank you for the way you include them, the details that you include, because we know that you have a message for us in these things. You have uh, truth that you're revealing to us and that you're emphasizing by means of these stories. And I pray that all of us would have a hunger and desire to know you through your revealed word, but also to know ourselves and to know what you want from us. And I pray that that would be our heart, our desire, all of us. This morning we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Do any of you have a nemesis? I, you don't need to raise your hand and tell me okay. who they are, or any of that. Someone who drives you crazy, takes some kind of sick pleasure in harassing you, and giving you trouble. Probably a younger brother, right? Unless you are the younger brother, right? Younger brothers just have this, this philosophy. Just sometimes, you know, my wife showed me this little video clip. This guy said that sometimes you just get an itch, like you got to scratch the itch. And the, the way to scratch it is to annoy your sister. Because, right? I mean, you just do it because you know it will drive her crazy. And so you do it. And then when it drives her crazy, I, I said to my, my girls the other day, because I have this happening in my home sometimes, and I said to them, when you get annoyed, you have just fed the beast. Don't get annoyed. It's like, it's like the thing they say about politicians. Don't vote, you'll just encourage them. And I say the same thing to my, to my girls. Don't, don't get annoyed, you just encourage them. That's what he was aiming for, right there. That's what he wanted to do. You have no idea who I'm talking about, though, do you? <laughs> Do you ever find yourself wishing 
that your nemesis would wake up one day with their braces locked together, the lower with the upper, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's see if we can untangle this. Give me the wire cutters. No, the bolt cutters. I'll take care of this for you. Or something like that. Maybe they wake up with their head stuck between the mattress and the headboard. Or something like that. <laughs> Chapter 3 opens with this theme. David waxed stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And chapter 4 brings that, the, the different tra trajectories of David and Saul to a, to a conclusion here with Ishbosheth. Now, surely we all recognize the great crime committed against Ishbosheth, and that is central to the story, and it sets up the key point. Because we see David acting like a king instead of like a petty tyrant. And that's good. That's good. That's a blessing to us. So I'm going to preach to you this morning on a reassuring justice. A reassuring justice. The, the narrator inserts between Ishbosheth at the beginning of the chapter and David at the end of the chapter. There's this insertion of the two sons of Ramon. They are the central part of the story here, and they bring a sudden and decisive end to the conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David. And Saul has been pursuing David, hunting David for a long time. He's dead now for a couple years. And yet, there is this ongoing conflict that's carried out through Abner and Ishbosheth as kind of a token resistance still to David. Um, the house of Saul in many ways is like Satan, didn't die easy, right? And kept on wrecking the house for as long as possible. And we will encounter this throughout the life of David, that the accusations regarding the house of Saul continued. They carried on uh, even after Ishbosheth was viciously murdered. But I want to treat these sons of Ramon as the centerpiece that God makes them here in this chapter. I want you to see uh, a few things, and we're, we're going to give um, some attention to each of the main characters in the story. We start with the weakness and failure of the house of Saul. And I want you to notice some things. I want to point out some things about this. The weakness and failure of the house of Saul. Our text communicates their weakness in a couple of different ways. And I, I remind you again that the inspired storyteller uh, crafts the story very well. And there are, there are a number of things and, and my hope always in, in preaching through these histories is not just that you would get something from the message itself. I want, I really like to give you something that sticks to the ribs, that, that stays with you. And I believe, I uh, fervently believe, that a big part of preaching is not just to give you my insights on the Word of God. 
brilliant as they might be. No doubt you're, you're all staggered by it. You come week after week to sit at my feet and learn of me. No doubt, right? Um, I'm being facetious. Okay, so don't get worried out there. But really, I believe that the preacher's duty is more than just to give you application in the moment. And, and I go beyond that and say that I believe that a huge mistake has been made in churches for a long time. Not that I've got to be careful about this because it's easy to be like that everyone else has got it wrong. You know, you've come to the place that got it right here. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I think that we've had so much of an influence, uh, emphasis, I should say, on the moment. And sermons have been designed for the moment to get an immediate emotional response from the hearer. That it's done a great disservice to the people of God. I've said to you many times, at any moment, even this moment, God can take me from you. I'm not going to be with you forever. Many of you will outlive me. The fruit of my ministry has to be that you were advanced, that you're... I've got like a thousand things running through my mind here. But there's a, a, an unstated, unspoken, and I think often unacknowledged goal that pastors have sometimes to create dependencies among their people. So that when I am taken away from you, you know, it, the church falls apart. Now to me, that's not a glorious legacy. That you couldn't make it without me. Alright? So the, the purpose of preaching has to be partly instructive of how to read the Bible. How to see what the Bible is saying. Because, look, if, if I take my kids fishing and all I ever do is bait their hook and cast it for them and hand them the rod and the reel for them to slowly reel back in and when they snag a fish, I take the rod from their hand and I pull it in. I haven't taught them anything about fishing. At all. Alright? Now, it, it, a a father wants his sons to be able to go out and find a good fishing hole on their own and bait their hook and cast and reel in some good fish and feed themselves with it. That's our purpose, not to create dependencies. So I, I don't want you to come into God's house with a dependent mindset that, you know, I don't know what to think about this until the pastor tells me what to think about this. That is a corruption and perversion of what we are doing as a church here and what our purpose is as a church. So let's say that first, and I've already gone far away from my notes, but I want you to notice the way the story is told because the storyteller is dropping huge, like they're, you know what they call them, Easter eggs, right? Treasures hidden in the text. There are all kinds of hints that the treasure leaves in the, 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 the storyteller leaves in the way that he tells the story and clues about what to think. And sometimes 
you think it the right way, but don't even notice the way the storyteller is shaping your view of this. And the storyteller is a master here. So I want you to notice the way the text communicates the weakness, the growing weakness of the house of Saul. First of all, Ishbosheth is at this time, 2 Samuel 4, carrying the banner for the house of Saul, and yet he is not mentioned by name until verse 5 in this chapter. You notice that? His dead brother, Jonathan, is named in verse 3. Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, is named in verse 3. But in the first two verses, Ishbosheth is only referred to as Saul's son. Because, again, this is what the house of Saul has come to. Ishbosheth. That's what it's come to. Mephibosheth. Not, not despising Mephibosheth. Just notice what is said about Mephibosheth. This is the first time Mephibosheth is mentioned. Here. We're being introduced to him. And only in one verse. It really interrupts the story to, to, to introduce Mephibosheth. When I, as I read the passage several times, I thought, why, why is Mephibosheth brought up right here? Later on, David will keep his promise to Jonathan regarding Mephibosheth. But why here? Why are we told about Mephibosheth here? What does that have to do with the story? But the point is, this is what the house of Saul has come to. The representatives are Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. That's it. Secondly, the Bible clearly paints Ishbosheth as a puppet king propped up by his uncle Abner. Now we've known this, but this chapter stresses the point. Notice how the chapter opens. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble. His hands were feeble. The literal Hebrew reading is, both his hands sunk down like this. He just hung limply at his sides. He couldn't do anything with him. He, he didn't put up his dukes at all. What little courage he had to begin with ran out on the day Abner died. Like a true puppet, Abner's hand served as Ishbosheth's backbone. And when Abner died, the spine went limp. Thirdly, when Ishbosheth is finally spoken of in verse number five, what we find him doing is laying in his bed at noon. Now, there no doubt could be legitimate reasons why a man would be laying in bed at noon. Maybe he works all night. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's taking a power nap. I'm okay with power naps. I like to take a power nap. Uh, from time to time, you know what a power nap is, right? 
It's not a car nap if it's two hours. All right? It's, and, and, but this is the thing. We all read this, and we know what to do with it. Even teenage boys know what to do with it. Who sometimes sleep in until noon o'clock. All right? We still know, when we're looking at it, a man in bed at noon, we're thinking, this is not a mark of strength. Right? We're thinking to ourselves, this is not the way a man conducts himself. In bed still at noon. We can debate about what time your day should start, what time you should be getting to work. We can talk about that. I don't have like a specific time, like 6.30 is when he must be out of bed. I'm not going to set an arbitrary time on it, but I can tell you for sure that he should be out of bed before noon. He should not be getting up at noon unless... He works all night long, in which case, midnight is his noon, and he's working. But a man, especially a king, he had, I mean, he was a self-declared king, right? He had put himself, his uncle Abner had put him on the throne, and so he was king, and Abner is dead now, but that means more responsibility falls to him. He can't just rely on Abner, but what is he doing? He's frozen. He's, he is gone limp because his uncle has died. And so what does he do? He lays in his bed. And apparently he was asleep. It would seem that way because <clears throat> these men come in his bedchamber <clears throat> and they smote him under the fifth rib, that means in the belly, while he's in bed. So he is completely helpless, completely defenseless, and the Bible paints him that way. <clears throat> now, like I said, um, we all recognize that this is not an appropriate thing for a young man. Whether he was young man or old, I don't, I don't know what his age was. I'm, I'm assuming, um, you know, Saul reigned for 40 years, so he would have been um, up in years uh, by the time he died. So his sons also would have been older, maybe my age, maybe a little bit older than that. I want you to notice also that both verse 5 and verse 7 mention the fact that uh, Ishbosheth is laying in bed So at noon. So two times. Now, now you know that when some a detail like that is repeated, is repeated in order to stress it, in order to emphasize the fact that here's a king who has a great deal of responsibility on his shoulders or has taken it upon himself to reign, to rule in his kingdom. You know, it was normal for a king, wherever he was reigning, um, to sit, and, and I learned this while I was in Israel, you had the city walls and you had the city gates where the, where the business was um, contracted and, and, and dealt with. And uh, we saw this especially when we were at Tel Dan because they had set it out there where the, the throne, the throne actually was at the city gate. 
And the, the king would sit there at the gate and anybody coming into the city was examined by the king. And any business that had to be contracted uh, was contracted there at the city gate. So he has a great deal of responsibility, but where is he? He's off in bed at noon. That's the point here. Again, to show you the weakness of the house of Saul. And I would add to that <clears throat> that it seems like this was an expected thing. So this is not like, you know, I've been hard at work since 5 o'clock this morning. I'm going to go take power now real quick so that I'll be fresh for the afternoon's work. No, apparently this is an expected thing. And I'll tell you why I see that. Because Rechab and Banna know where to find Ishbosheth. They come into its house pretending to be gathering wheat. So there's some kind of, they, they pretend that they're on official business. But they know that they're going to find him in bed. They know where to find him. They know what he'll be doing. And so apparently it is well known that Ishbosheth does this. It's kind of like having a president who spends much of his day with a blanket over his legs in an easy chair. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> this, is, this is what is happening in Israel with Ishbosheth. Make no mistake about it. The narrator is intentionally painting Ishbosheth as a weak, helpless creature laying in his bed at noon, defenseless. And in fact, that's what the house of Saul's come to. Ishbosheth sleeping in the middle of the day. And what else is left of the house of, uh, of Saul is this crippled, probably about a seven-year-old now, Mephibosheth. I wondered, as I said, what was the point of Mephibosheth being inserted here, but that has to be the point to show you that this is what the house of Saul has become here. The second thing I want to point out to you from the passage is the brutality and treachery of the house of Ramon. Now, the Hebrew storyteller is, again, brilliant in the way he tells the story. You have to admire it because he sets the stage for this brutal murder by painting Ishbosheth as a pitiful, pitiful creature. Like you, you look at Ishbosheth, and you think no threat, right? No threat. No threat, and therefore no reason for the extreme brutality of this murder here. <clears throat> so we are then being steered, really, by the storyteller to recognize Rechab and Banna as brutal bullies. Here. That's, that is the point in the passage, by saying it this way. Now, it seems that the oldest of the two sons was Banna, and I say that because in verse 2, when they're introduced, the Bible uses the cardinal number one, which would indicate the firstborn son, son number one, was Banner. But in the rest of the passage, 
Rechab is mentioned first, which would seem to me to indicate that he was the ringleader. He was the one who plotted this out. He was the one who planned all of this. But the Bible goes to great lengths to attach these two sons to their father and his house. Every time they're mentioned, in fact, their father's house is mentioned as well. In fact, their father's house is mentioned more than they're mentioned, but they are never mentioned without mentioning Ramon, their father. The narrator also goes into their family history and the history of the place where they live, the history of their hometown. <clears throat> now, of course, we notice that these were fellow Benjamites, and that's the, the most important point. That's the point of this right here. Ramon is a Benjamite. They are from a Benjamite city. We know already that Ishbosheth, the house of Saul, is from Gibeah of Saul. So they're Benjamites, they're fellow Benjamites. And so the reason that the Bible is doing this is to tell you this was not just a random act of violence. There's no, there's no question, no doubt that what these men did was treacherous. They have access to his house. They are his kinsmen. They're from the same tribe as he is. There was obviously a relationship of trust. They are officials for Ishbosheth. They're not doing this for any reason. They're certainly not doing it out of zeal for David. They are doing it out of treachery. They're doing it for themselves. That's what this is about. So again, the narrator wants you to understand that first of all, the extreme brutality was not called for, was not required, was not necessary. Ishbosheth is almost a sympathetic figure in the story. Not that, I mean, it's hard for me to feel sorry for a guy who is <clears throat> sleeping at noon, right? That's a pretty tough call for me. But then on top of that, to, you still feel bad because you, you picture him as this, I mean, lily white, kind of pudgy, right? Do nothing kind of guy who, you know, probably whined a lot during the day. And then here come these two who have his trust, right? His trusted officials. They come to him, cut off his head, right? That's what you're seeing in the story. They didn't just kill him. They stabbed him in the belly, according to verse six, under the fifth rib. And then the next verse gives even more detail. Right? Elaborates on their murder. <clears throat> Before they escaped, they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and ran away all night to Hebron. Now, Hebron is about 80 miles from Maenam, where Ishbosheth was reigning. And so they make this, it must have been like a two day trek carrying the head of Ishbosheth. Now, I've been listening to um, podcast stories um, from the Old West, and if the Old West was a brutal, brutal, bloody place. What I mean, what David did to these two murders of Ishbosheth is brutal and bloody as well. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that uh, was happening in the Old West, and there were times where a bounty was put on somebody, but they had to have the body, 
And so, and, and they captured the guy, but in capturing him, they killed him. And then they had to haul his body for a couple of weeks. Can you imagine that? I mean, you think, you know, you watch it in a movie and you see him sling it over the, uh, over the saddle, right? And tie the feet and hands together. Nobody thinks about the fact that the body starts decomposing immediately as soon as they die. And the stench, the smell of that, they're carrying this head because they're ambitious. They're ambitious to get themselves, secure for themselves, a position in David's kingdom. That's what this is all about. Now the passage is making a point with all of this, and the point is not to convince you that Rechab and Baana are heroes. There is nothing heroic about what they do, and the Bible is careful to make sure you know that. Now, I doubt that I have to convince you of that. I'm not going to take time even to try to convince you of it because I think that you already saw that, already recognized. Here's this pathetic weakling napping in the middle of the day. And here come these two thugs to decapitate him and carry his head to David in hopes that they can garner some new favor, some kind of favor with the new king. The Bible makes you know that this is nothing more than a bully act. The jocks beating up on the kindergartners. That's what it is. It's, it's like that. It'd be like, you know, getting whatever the, the big name NBA team, like the, the Lakers. Let's say the Lakers. We all love to see them lose. Um, the Lakers beating up on a high school team. Not, not like the state champion team, but a team that couldn't even win in their region, right? And uh, they take it to them and beat them by like 180 to 2 or something like that. And no, nobody's going, wow, we are impressed sufficiently. That's the point here, is to make you see it that way. The Bible makes you know this, that they were not just bullies harassing Ishbosheth, cutting off his head and carrying it as a trophy to the new king. Is, goes beyond harassment. And if that doesn't make you see just how pathetic these two yard birds are, notice how pious they become when they arrive in Hebron. <clears throat> Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, right? which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king. This day of Saul and of his seed. We, uh, no, no, we didn't. They didn't mention themselves as David's deliverer, but clearly they mean to imply that God has used us to deliver you in this. Never mind that Saul's been dead for a couple of years now, so David was already delivered from the threat of Saul. We can still parade out all the pompous justifications that we need to in order to defend ourselves, in order to justify what we did. They were doing the Lord's work when they snuck into his bedchamber and murdered him and decapitated him. It was for the Lord. They were the Lord's avenging angels. They were God's servants. Oh, they don't say it, but clearly they mean it. 
And so these sons of Ramon add sin to their sin, attempting to cover their sin with pious intentions. As Dale Davis points out, for them, theology is not truth that lures us to worship God, but technique that enables us to justify ourselves. Now, I'll pause, step away from my notes, and point out to you that this kind of thing is becoming almost commonplace today in our country as we see preachers using the Bible and pious phrases to defend and even promote the worst kind of wickedness and sin you've ever seen. You see preachers using the Bible to argue for homosexuality and embracing homosexuality and gay marriage and using the love your neighbor and justice and all that the Bible says about that in order to defend what is clearly against Scripture. This is not a new thing, folks. It goes all the way back to the sons of Ramon and even before that, when people, in order to promote themselves and defend the wicked things they've done, use the Bible to do so. We've seen it. We've seen it many times. When people, you know, it's a special kind of charlatan who hides behind the Bible to defend an ungodly life and an ungodly action. They wield the Bible around like some kind of club to impose their own particular, their peculiar views on people around them to impose an ungodly morality on people to call evil good and good evil almost always you'll see, and, and, and this is where it is in our country today look, if persecution comes, which I believe it will possibly in my lifetime let me tell you something it's not going to come from the secularists yeah. it's going to come from church people people who go to church and use the Bible to call evil good and good evil. The most rabid haters of faithful Christianity come from the rank of so-called Christians and churches who are doors wide open to every kind of perversion. This, this is what we're up against now. It's amazing to me how dogmatic they can be when defending a wicked practice. How dogmatically and how carefully, precisely they apply the word of God when defending immorality. And it's amazing to me also how... <clears throat> Almost they disregard the word of God when you confront them about their sin and their error. When anyone approaches them about a fault, they have an uncanny skill at dodging any charge that might be laid at their feet. It reminds me of when I was a teenager playing church ball. Now, if you know anything about church ball at all, then you know 
that the worst person to be in a game of church ball is a teenage boy. All right? And I'll tell you from my own experience, okay? This is, I, I don't know. Every time I talk about it, it, it just conjures up feelings of injustice. I'll say it that way. Because when I was playing, well, first of all, when you play church ball, you know that there are not referees. There should be referees. I think that for church ball especially, there should be like a whole pool of referees available. Not people who go to your church. Because that's not going to work. Because you call your own fouls. Now, how does that work when you've got a team? Because it's always always the adult men want to play against the teenage boys. At least that's how it was in my church ball experience. And so it was always that. And of course, then the men have to compensate for their fading athletic abilities by calling fouls very precisely. Like if so much of, as a breeze extends from your raised hand and brushes against their hand when they take a shot, it's a foul. That's a foul. A two-shot foul because I was in the act of shooting. If I was thinking about shooting the ball, I was in the act of shooting. And so we're going to take, in fact, we're just going to take shots, free throws until we make it. Right? When the men are doing it. But on the other hand, and I didn't mind that, you know, they called fouls that were not fouls at all. I didn't mind that. But when I clearly got hacked, like, like when I had the ball and I got like hatchets coming down on my head and for, and I'm just getting beat to death. If I called a foul, you know what the men would do? Every time. This is where like the bitterness comes out. See? Please help me. <laughs> the men would go every time. I'm still mad about it. I'm still mad about it. Where, cry Did I hurt you? Oh, oh. and, and it, then it, of course, if if when they called a foul, if I said something like, I was oh banished, banished from the gym. You will not talk to a, a adults like that. That's what I'm saying. I, I just had to get that rant in to the middle of the message. <clears throat> but this is how it works. This is human nature. That we defend ourselves very from Scripture very precisely, very precise in our application. But we, um, we also, when we're attacking other people, when it's something that matters to us, see, this is the problem is that it becomes about me instead of about God and honoring him and his word. The spirit of the sons of Ramon is alive and well. When they're brutalizing other saints, they are not at all worried about the Lord's will, but when they're explaining what they did to others, they always, they always sound like they were actually being righteous. And what they did, they had righteous intentions. Now the Hebrew storyteller puts this in the middle of the story to show you what happened here because this is the central event in the story, but the point of the message, the point of the chapter comes after this. I want you to see thirdly, the wisdom and justice of King David. I want you to notice this because 
things don't go as planned when these brutal brothers arrive in Hebron with Ishbosheth's head. Now, <clears throat> it always amazes me that apparently there's a lot of a lot of rumor that spread about David, and you know, a lot of things that people thought they knew about David. How is it that nobody knew how David would deal with this kind of treachery? How did they not know this? Did they not know what happened to the Amalekite when he just claimed that he had put Saul out of his misery? That was all. And David immediately demanded his execution. Right then. So how did they not know this? Maybe this is what uh, is meant by, the, maybe this is just one of the more illustration of the age-old maxim that sin makes you stupid, right? Nonetheless, they brought that gory head to David, and David promptly treated them like the criminals that they were. Their little theological dance didn't last very long, and certainly they didn't get any curtain calls with it. But I want you to notice how David introduces his verdict against the sons of Ramon. Verse 9, And David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. That's what David says. As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. It's an interesting thing for David to say. Because the claim that these Ramon brothers are making is that they have delivered David from his adversaries, right? And David says, he's in fact swearing an oath here. As the Lord liveth, this is an oath. The Lord who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. David is giving credit and the glory the Lord, but not for the brutal murder of Ishbosheth. David might have been tempted to accept this explanation as it's the providence of God, it's providential. You did this. I'm just going to let you go because you did me a favor. Certainly, David acknowledges that the Lord has redeemed him out of all adversity, but David isn't about to agree that God used a couple of thugs like this to do it. Now, again, there's no doubt that Rechab and Banna are looking for a place in David's kingdom where they might, you know, there's a suggestion, the power of suggestion. I could be the hitman for you, right? I could be your gunslinger. Right? I could be the enforcer. We could be the enforcer. But look at us, two of us. We knew how to get to Ishbosheth. We delivered you. But David isn't having it. In fact, he denies that they have been an instrument of God for vengeance. The praise, of course, belongs to the Lord and Him alone. And so when David swore an oath in the name of God, as the Lord liveth, he makes sure to include the fact that it is the Lord who delivers him out of all adversity. That's why David has not gone to extremes to eliminate Ishbosheth. He trusted the Lord to deal with his adversary. He trusted the Lord. 
And now these two men who unjustly took matters into their own hands, David doesn't have anything for them. Well, he does have something for them. While it is true that God has used some pretty broken vessels, nobody should flatter themselves that God will use them in the commission of a crime. Uh, we had once upon a time, many years ago, 20 years ago in our church, an adulterous couple who defended their adultery by arguing. This is what they argued. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and out of that adulterous union, God brought forth Solomon. So God could use maybe a baby that's born from our adultery. Now, if there's ever a presumptuous wicked, ungodly justification for a wicked sin. It is that. That kind of thing. To use the Bible to defend what is not defendable. And so I love it that David squashes them, immediately squashes the whole notion that you are doing God's work. He doesn't give Rechab and Banna even a second to think that their scheme might work with him. He shuts it down immediately and instead gives these two a history lesson in verses 10 and 11. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, David sees this for what it is. A treacherous, brutal betrayal. And you might wonder how David knew that they slew Ishbosheth upon his bed. How do you know that? Was he clairvoyant? Did he have like a crystal ball he looked into? Was there instant replay? The Bible doesn't say how he knew this. Right? We know that the sons of Ramon tried to paint their assassination as the Lord's work. But the Bible doesn't tell us that they filled in David on the brutal details of how they pulled it off. And yet, David clearly knew what they did. He knew that they killed him in his own bed. An innocent man, that's what word righteous means there, an innocent man. We can assume then that they did some boasting, some bragging to David about how they did this. And David calls it like it is. They're trying to endear themselves to David, but instead they made themselves deplorable to David. They did not know what manner of man David was. Here's the thing. David did not, in this case, remember when the Amalekite came and told the story of the death of Saul, and David demanded, commanded his young men to kill him right there on the spot of public execution. Really, his first act as king was to execute a villain, execute a criminal there. But God, or David, simply executed him. He was an Amalekite. He was, certainly, I mean, the Amalekites had a little extra grudge against King Saul, so David recognizes that, he executes it, but he doesn't make a public display of it. 
but just to communicate the extreme displeasure of King David. Not only did he command his men to execute Rechabendana, but also to cut off their hands and their feet and to hang their mangled bodies by the pool of Hebron as a public display. And we know, because we know our Bibles, we know the curse it was to a Jew to be hung in any fashion in a public way. And so this hanging was an announcement that these two are cursed here. And to add to the insult, he honored Ishbosheth, burying his head with honor in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. And we know it was with honor because Abner himself was honored by David after he was murdered. Now, hopefully you see the point that's being made in this passage, but let me just emphasize a couple things here. The brutal murder of such a pitiful king demands justice, and David gives it. Justice. That's the point. Now, if you read your Bible, you know the high, high value God places on true justice. Justice is a priority in the kingdom of God. It is a priority for God. Now, of course, David is dealing with the powder keg here because there's still a lot of loyalty to the house of Saul. People had an expectation, as we do now, that kings are hereditary that their sons will be kings after them. So David needs a lot of wisdom in how he deals with this. The accusations will come. In fact, they did come. And surely David didn't win everyone over by what he did here, but he can at least show the country that he means business when he insists on justice. Now, later on, when Absalom um, plotted against David and ran him out of Jerusalem, we know that Shimei, who was of the house of Saul, stood along the road and threw dirt at David and accused him in regards to the house of Saul. 2 Samuel 16 is where we'll come to that, but that could be like several years from now, so I'll read it for you now. And when King David came to Behurim, behold, thence came out, of, came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, Shimei that the son of Gera, he came forth and cursed still as he came, and he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus saith Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee, listen to this, all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son, and behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. So there was this lingering accusation that David could never fully escape. Look, how easy would it be for David to hire Rechab and Banna to murder Ishbosheth in his bed, and then to make a public display of justice, right? 
Isn't it interesting, though, that none of us believe that that's what David did? Why don't we think that David did that? Shimei I clearly thought that. Why don't we think that? Because 1 and 2 Samuel make it abundantly clear that David was the oppressed, not the oppressor. That David was the victim of all of Saul's things and that David himself was righteous in his conduct towards the house of Saul. And we believe that. And rightly so. In fact, it can be argued that First and Second Samuel are written in part, at least, as a defense of David in his conduct towards the house of Saul. And what the Bible gives us here is a display, a demonstration of David's commitment to justice. And his commitment to justice, I think, is part of what united the kingdom around David because they saw it, they recognized it, and they were assured and reassured by what David did here. Because, and this is the point I want to make here, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. There is something very reassuring assuring, and comforting even about true justice. When sin is dealt with appropriately, it gives reassurance to the people. Mm -hmm. And that's what David did right here. He dealt justly with the sons of Ramon, and Israel was reassured as a result. Now, it certainly didn't reassure everyone. He didn't win them all. You know what Nathan said. Right, you can please all the people some of the some of the time, and some of the people all of the time. But you can't please all the people all the time, right? Um, which I think you know, like pastors should be able to recite that before they're ordained. But nonetheless, David here is acting the part of the king because the Bible says in Proverbs twenty nine and verse four, the king by judgment establisheth the land. But he that receiveth gifts overthroweth. And a few verses later, Proverbs 29, verse 14, the king that faithfully judgeth the poor, his throne shall be established forever. A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. David put Israel on notice that you can do it for me, but I'm not going to accept it. The story goes that Teddy Roosevelt had uh, a rider who was riding for him who uh, stole some cattle and brought it to him and showed it off as a trophy. Look what I did for you. And then Teddy Roosevelt fired him on the spot because he said, if you would steal for me, then you would steal from me. Right? The guy who will murder your ally, your rival in order to get in good with you will murder you when he no longer has use for you. David is a wise king here, and justice, though it is not easy, is always 
good and right. Which is why the Bible puts so much emphasis on it. So those who are in authority, whether you are a parent or a boss, an employer, or some other capacity, you must understand the importance of justice. Uh, it would be easy for David. It would be easy. We would all understand it if David wiped his hands of it and said, I didn't do it. But he had it coming. Right? About Ishbosheth. Yeah, I mean, too bad about old Ishbosheth. Right? He had no business taking the throne. And he got his comeuppance. And we might just ignore what happened. Maybe even say, yeah, this sense of Vermont, maybe you can, you know, do my dirty work for me. But David doesn't do that. And let that be a lesson to you. No matter how much you despise a person, no matter how much they bother you, we still have to value justice above our desires to get that, see that person get his comeuppance. You might not be able to stand them, maybe they annoy you to death, but they are made in God's image and that image is valuable even in a person you don't care for. They deserve justice. And this is the way God made the world because God made us in such a way that our hearts cry out for justice. We find it very dissatisfying to read of a crime like this committed against Ishbosheth. If the criminal gets away with it, we don't like that. We think it's wrong. And that reminds us of why it's important that God himself not give sin a pass. Now, none of us want God to give sin a pass when it comes to people who we detest. But we all want God to give sin a pass when it comes to me, my sin. But God is just in an even-handed way. The Bible says it this way. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done for God. God is no respecter of persons. And that's a good thing. He will never give sin a pass. He will never say, it's all right. It's okay. And that means we don't get away with it. No matter how much we tell ourselves that it was for the Lord, for his sake, we don't get away with it. And that's why it's good that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. Because when Jesus Christ came to this world, he did no sin. No guile was found in his mouth. And the Bible tells us that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, wounded him for our sins, bruised him, because of what we did and heals us with his stripes. The wounds he received for our sins are for the healing of sinners. He wants you to know 
that he cares about justice so deeply, he is so committed to justice, that he cannot, he will not pardon sinners unless the sin is paid for. And that's why if you try to come to God independently of Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, you will not be accepted. Because your sins have to be paid for, and the only one, the only one who pays for your sin is Jesus Christ. His payment is acceptable to God. No other payment, no other recompense, no other attempt to satisfy justice is accepted by God except for the death, the bloody, gory death of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and that's the point of this passage. God does not go into all this depth of detail about the murder of Ishbosheth because, you know, the Bible has to reach a certain word count and you've got to have certain stories in the Bible like human interest stories or things like this. This is not an interesting story. This is, in fact, a pretty disturbing story if you think about it. But God wants you to know that he cares about justice even when the crime committed involves weak, sniveling usurpers like Ishbosheth. He deserves justice too because he too is made in the image of God. God wants you to know that because he wants you to know why he would endorse what David did to avenge Ishbosheth and yet not be okay with what the sons of Ramon did to he wants you to know that he has no place for oppression in his kingdom, whether from the ruling class or from those who commit acts of brutality. No room for it. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible lays out for us what really is the bottom line expectation from God. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what did the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? God wants justice. That should make parents careful to ensure with their children that there is justice when you mete out punishments, that you not just fly off the handle that you investigate and you do your due diligence to ensure that you're punishing the right person for an actual crime that they committed. It should make teachers careful to get the facts straight before they throw the book at a student. It should make the boss especially careful to mete out justice in the workplace rather than caving in to the most vocal employee. It should make us pray for our elected officials, for our local police, that they'll carry out justice. It should make us concerned with justice. I hope you will be. 